Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 96 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. I am David Blakesley, and we are continuing our journey through the Criterion films of 1972 to discuss a pair of films by Les Blank, Spend It All and A Well-Spent Life. Uh, I'll introduce my guests in a moment, but I guess maybe I'll start. <laughs> I don't know if this is a minor technical point or not, but these are films that are listed as 1971 films if you look at the uh, packaging and the Criterion website. However, I go by IMDb, and IMDb says that uh, they were released on March 10th of 1972, and I have a review from March 11th, 1972, from the New York Times. So from my, from my perspective, these are 1972 movies. But if I am violating some rules of my own uh, device uh, with, the, with the chronological timeline, so be it. I'm delighted to talk about these films. They were a tonic to my soul and very uplifting. And uh, hopefully my guests will have a similar reaction. We'll see where that goes. Uh, but yeah, we're going to get into a couple short films. They're about 45 minutes each. A nice double feature, about the length of a single... Uh, a theatrical feature film, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what my guests have to say. So let's start with that introduction. Uh, Josh Hornbeck, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Uh, this is uh, really great to be here, and uh, really great to be talking about these two films. Uh, I've only kind of dipped my toes into Les Blank's work, and uh, every time I I start to watch his films, I just am... Uh, charmed. I I just I find them really refreshing, and uh, so I'm really excited to talk with these uh, talk about these films with y'all. It's great to be with you again, and then welcoming back to the show. It's been a few months, sir. Adam Spickerman. Adam, nice to see you. Good to be back, David. Uh, always excited to get on here and talk about some Criterion films. I watched all of the Les Blank films back when the Criterion first put out their big set and really enjoyed them and this was the first time i've kind of rewatched them since then watched these two and uh, it was a lot of fun coming back to them excellent well i want to hear a little bit more about that uh, you know that kind of interest and in, in your experience with those films but let's catch up a little bit i think the last time you were with us was uh, what last summer we talked about uh, truffaut's two english girls is that uh yeah with you? i think that was yeah yeah that yeah was, uh, that was a lot of fun and I, I listened back to that episode and it was it was just as much fun hearing it again that was uh a movie I'm still every month I expect Criterion to put it out and it doesn't show up in the new releases and I'm a little bit bummed every month. Yeah, it really feels like Truffaut has kind of fallen off their radar. I mean, they're they definitely diversifying their lineup. I think they they definitely want to show that they're not just about the traditional art house canon, but it's not bad to have a little traditional art house canon every once in a while, right? So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, so. I'll uh, join you in awaiting that release one of these days. But uh, well, it's good to have you back. And and, and let's, since you've already kind of brought it up, let me just talk about your uh, interest in Les Blank. Um, I probably had seen snippets. Some of these films looked familiar to me, but I'd never really focused on the figure of Les Blank as a filmmaker. I certainly didn't have the idea. Uh, any awareness of the diversity or the kind of the unique path that he carved out for himself as an independent filmmaker. Uh, but it seems like uh, that, that bug bit you pretty hard. You got that set and got right into it. So tell us about uh, your interest and what that was like for you. Uh, well, I got the set but for two reasons. One, it had been rumored they were going to do the less blank as an eclipse set for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I saw they were putting it out on like an actual spine numbered Blu-ray release, I was like, ah, oh, that's nice. 
And then the other reason I really got excited about the set was I saw one of them was called Garlic uh, is as good as 10 Mothers. And I was like, oh, yeah. I have to see that movie. Okay. You're a bit of a foodie yeah. there. You like, you like yeah, your garlic? Definitely, <laughs> definitely a foodie. Uh, and so I was complete, went blind into all the rest of the films completely, had no idea what it was, but I just started watching after I got the set one a night for about two weeks or so and really enjoyed them. And Spend It All was probably one of my favorites. That's the that's the Mance one, right? The um, oh, Spend It All is the Cajun one. Spend oh. It All is the Cajun one. Uh, so yeah, yeah, A Well Spent Life was my mm-hmm. that and Garlic were as good as Ten Mothers were my two favorite out of that set. And uh, yeah, I just really loved um, both Mance and his philosophy, but also just the the fact that they were kind of out in rural, like I'm guessing Northeast Texas, you know, farm country, you know, at the height of spring when everything's just verdant and green and it looks gorgeous and amazing. And I grew up in Missouri. Both my parents, you know, had farms that look an incredible amount like what Mance's farm looked like, uh, like the, that my grandparents lived, uh, had. Mm. Uh, And that was like a little bit of like a lightning bolt moment for me watching that movie the first time I was like, huh. I have literally never seen in like a filmic portrayal of this area of the country ever. It's always just been ignored. It's either, you know, uh, it's it's never kind of those rolling like pasture fields and like, you know, the handmade fence posts with the like the wire loop and all these mm-hmm. little bitty details of like just like farm existence in that kind of particular like climate of the Midwest because mm-hmm. I was we're you know from southern missouri so it's not that different from tex uh northeast texas and i was just like amazed and it's made me realize like that most of the time when like rural america's portrayed it's like the great lakes region the upper midwest you know uh, the rust belt type of areas or it's california standing in for something else and there's just a arid dryness to the terrain of california that it never looks right uh when they're trying to like play it off as the Midwest. And it was, it was something that I just immediately fell in love with the fact that I was finally seeing something that felt intimately familiar to me on screen. That's fantastic. And, and what a, what a great kind of a personal connection that it forged there, because you're right. These are films that are literal flyover country, all of those cliches. Uh, Les Blank is taking his camera into places that are really fascinating but mm-hmm. as you say, underdocumented, underappreciated, mm-hmm. perhaps taken for granted, or even worse, looked down upon because this is this is kind of where the rubes are from, you know, and the hicks and out <laughs> in the sticks and the boonies and whatever, you know, other other little uh, you know tags we put on some of those uh, less developed, uh, less urban regions. Before we get into analyzing the films, though, let's just talk a little bit about this this figure of Les Blank. Let, and, and I'll just kind of give a little mini bio. He was born in Florida, Tampa, Florida, 1935. Uh, went to uh, Tulane University in New Orleans. So I think that's probably a little bit of where he got some of his initial exposure to the Cajun culture and, and that whole uh, Louisiana scene. Uh, and eventually wound up settling into the Bay Area, lived in Berkeley for the latter part of his life after he'd already established himself as a pretty you know, important uh, and singular individual voice of American independent cinema. Uh, but before that, in the early 1960s, he actually went out to, I think, was at UCLA and did the film studies program down there and got a, got some work just making industrial films, uh, kind of 
business promotional instructional type of things, uh, which he considered pretty insipid. But that started in the early 1960s, and it's kind of alluded to in this box set here. But uh, what we're getting in this really beautiful edition, this three Blu-ray set, less blank, always for pleasure, as a you know three disc set, fourteen kind of main films, a bunch of short supplements. Some some sort of surrounding context, some interviews with Blank and other people close to him, just to kind of give a very well-rounded portrait of the artist and his most important works. And uh, it really is quite a quite a treat to uh, just encounter this guy because he's a pretty chill dude uh, who really had a gift for settling into different environments and allowing the uh, the people to speak for themselves. And uh, boy, his, his just his whole technique of how these films are put together. I definitely want to spend some time talking about that. Uh, but that's a little little bit of a biography. He he died in 2013. I think this set came out like the following year. And then Criterion also has released a couple other films of his. Um, the Burden of Dreams, a pretty famous documentary about the making of Herzog's uh, Fitzgeraldo, where uh, Herzog uh, had befriended Les Blank. They, they were both coming up as directors around the same time, I guess you could say. And uh, Herzog brought Les Blank with him down to Peru and South America to just chronicle this outrageous, you know, this scheme that he had about pulling this massive steamship over the mountains, uh, you know, in, in real life not just a movie stunt, but uh, while he was making the film Fitzcarraldo. And then a posthumous production, I guess, uh, uh, what's it called now? Shoot, the Leon Russell movie. A poem is a naked person. There you go. Right. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, I haven't even seen that one yet. I, I you know, Again, I'm kind of working my way chronologically. But watching these two films really did kind of prompt that that urge for me to splurge on the rest of the set and, and get deeper into it uh josh let's kind of get a little bit of feedback from you uh you know you, you've watched these films how much of the rest of the set have you gotten into or are you just kind of getting started with less i'm you know so i'm just getting a little bit started with him i had seen a few of his films on the criterion channel i think back in the hulu days um and so i had seen uh, Always for Pleasure and The Blues, according to Lightning Hopkins. Uh, so I had seen uh, just mm-hmm. a couple of, just a handful of, uh, had a, a few experiences with his films. And I remember just absolutely being riveted by both of those films, uh, especially for uh, with Always for Pleasure. I think that was one that uh, captivated me just deeply. It was uh, before the the HBO series Treme about the rebuilding of New Orleans and about some of the, the traditions mm-hmm. around New Orleans and Mardi Gras came out. And it gave me a historical context, actually, for what I was seeing in that show later uh, as well. And so getting a, a chance to see some of that was really fascinating. And I really appreciated just being kind of plunked down into uh, a space, into a world, into a culture that I was really unfamiliar with. And he doesn't do a whole lot to try to orient you to it. He just lets you experience it. And that experiential component of his films, I find really, really beautiful and really just uh rich and uh so that was really really exciting and so uh you know i think one of the reasons why i was excited to sign up to to talk about these films is to to dig in and to give me an impetus to dig in a little bit more to some of his other films and uh uh, i love that he he goes between these uh in both of these films uh into looking at 
one community and one culture. And then with uh, a well-spent life, uh, not just this profile of this incredible musician, but really the culture and the the community that surrounds him. And uh, I mean, they're just both gorgeous films that I, again, found myself extremely riveted by, really drawn into, and uh, uh, so enraptured by. I think he his filmmaking style is... It just it pulls you into a time, a specific time and space, and uh, he does a really incredible job of just opening up the world to you in some ways that I feel like uh, even even great verite filmmakers uh, don't take their time with some of the details that he finds and focuses in on. Yeah, and that, that that's a great kind of segue into where does he stand? You know, he, he, I guess this fits into the the overall genre of documentary. But he's he's really not there as a there's no narrator there's no uh, guiding hand other than his camera but the way he uses the imagery and then the very lyrical touch that he has with incorporating mm-hmm. the music and the uh, impressions whether it's landscape small details uh, he he he's kind of putting you in this environment and then every so often you know he'll focus on uh, specific individuals give them the chance to speak but it's never really even about them i mean it might be i suppose in a certain sense but it's really about their way of life their, their wisdom their heritage their community uh, and i think that's the that's the thing that is that i just found so uh, as I, I think i've already said uplifting and and in, almost inspirational just uh, really getting a sense of of the energy and the warmth and the humanity and and the richness of these relationships and these individuals who, uh, you know, I think you can pretty much say have have lived their life often in very difficult circumstances, you know, materially uh, and, and other types of uh, situations. We'll, we'll maybe dig into some of those details a little bit more, but you know, he, he was, um, let's see. So if he's born in 35, so yeah, he's probably in his early mid thirties when he's making these films, but he's, he seems to have sort of stumbled onto or developed a very unique approach that, cause this is still pretty early in his career as an indie filmmaker. He had done like, I think the blues according to lightning Hopkins and, uh, God respects us when we work, but loves us when we dance. So I think are his first two kind of solo features each about 30 45 minutes long and that's that seems to be about the length that he was most comfortable with he might get up to about an Mm -hmm. hour every once in a while but he liked to just kind of come in make his impact and then you know and then leave it there um adam you know you've you've been through the whole set there let's just talk about this early stage of les blank's career you know and you're in the film business yourself you're you're like editing and and things so Mm -hmm. maybe you've got some insight as to you know how are these films put together what kind of uh disciplines or techniques did he bring to the table to give us these unique slices of life and I, th- I think maybe with lightning hopkins but definitely with these two films you really see him consciously developing like his films to speak with a less blank voice you know it's very much in the art auteur theory vein of how he's making documentaries he's not constructing these films in a way that they're utterly transparent to what his interview subjects want to say and do. It's the the editing and the choices and the digressions and everything give it all his very distinct thumbprint that it's distinctly in his voice. And that's maybe a more a more modern critique of his work from like, you know, other documentarians might be that he's uh 
particularly in like a poem as a naked person, he's really not respecting his subject. He keeps trying to diverge his sub the subject he's supposed to be doing into things, side stories and diversions that he's interested in. And that's part of why that film wasn't released for so long mm-hmm. because Leon Russell was expecting to get something like don't look now that the Pennebakers did for Bob Dylan. And instead he had less blank wanting to put Leon Russell in a less blank box or just ignore mm-hmm. Leon Russell and go shoot interesting side stories. And you know, that, corner of Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, uh, that they were in. So I see his films as uh, they're really incredibly edited. And I think he constructs it, both his voice and his films and his style all through the editing. And in finding these amazing bits and pieces that he gets out of people's interviews and then weaving them together with like the the food and those little slice of light moments and the like the little mm-hmm. details that he finds, like in Spend It All, where there's just, you know, a shot of a guy showing up to the big Cajun barbecue and he stopped his car inside the gate. And it's just a shot of the guy going back to the gate, closing the gate and then getting back in his car. It's like just those little like moment of life details integrated into the wider stuff, like the rhythms that he has with that is all kind of what makes things uniquely less blank. Yeah, I, I that's that's exactly the kind of thing that when you're watching it, you don't really notice it as much it's just like you're just sort of there in this zone and the music is just kind of flowing and the, mm-hmm. the, there, there's the hubbub of life you know the interactions the mumblings the little side comments the audio isn't you know the audio tracks the vocal tracks are not always legible almost like a Jacques Tati just kind of the ambiance of, of people interacting but you don't really have to care about the details of what's being said you just sort of you're just picking up the vibe in the room whether it's a bunch of yeah old codgers you know drinking whiskey mm-hmm. and beer and having a little dance or or people at a barbecue or, or or whatever the case may be so well let's get into the films themselves a little bit there just to let and we'll focus on spend it all which i guess maybe chronologically was the first one uh this is the cajun one that it features the music of the balfa brothers i'll probably you know generously help myself to some audio clips and the intros and transitions (laughs) in this episode so you get a little chance to revisit some of that uh but really yeah you you know and again the film just drops you in you just see a couple boys on horseback you can tell they're in some sort of a an apparatus that's gonna you know formally start the race you know they're not just out there riding around there's a there's a track in front of them and it's just the preparation that dramatic buildup before they you know fire the gun open the gates and the horses go thundering down the down the rail there uh, but you have no idea what this is especially if you're coming into it blind and uh, it's it's a pretty exciting beginning there but all of a sudden it's like we're down in down in cajun country and mm-hmm. uh, this may be one of those areas where maybe less blank hadn't even established his own rules yet because there is some text uh kind of introduction to talk about the acadian people the french settlers who i first landed in in nova scotia and basically became almost a a community in exile until they finally meandered their way down to you know the the bayou country and the and the kind of the the less desirable uh, swamplands of of uh, Louisiana where nobody else wanted to live so they they found some territory and and created this really uh, amazing rustic way of life. Uh, Josh, have you ever been down that way? Have you ever had much exposure to a Cajun way of life or or that culture at all? Cuz I I will say I have not, but it was pretty pretty fascinating. You know, I've been to New Orleans, uh, but that is not 
being exposed to Cajun culture. Uh, you know, that is, uh, being exposed to the, I mean, you're, I'm getting, you're, you're getting whiffs of it and you're getting, uh, bits of it, but I have not actually been into, uh, an actual Cajun community. Um, and, uh, I mean, this was, and this is also, you know, what, 50 years ago. So this is, so things have changed, I'm sure even since then, but, I mean, just being dropped into that. Uh, I like David that you mentioned that the uh, the text there kind of feels like a little out of place in some ways um, because so much of the rest of the film is just really experiencing and just really sitting there with the community and getting snippets of the music. I'm glad I had some of that. Uh, that context. Uh, But the truth is that I would have been just as happy to just sit there with these people and to be invited into these backyard barbecues, to be sitting in the the corner of the bar where the music is happening, to uh, seeing the, the fishing and the fish markets. And again, you're just left with this, this series of images that are all, uh, as you said, Adam, just meticulously edited and meticulously put together in a way that just creates this this really vivid impression and this vivid portrait of a community and of a life and of a a way of life that is really, um, really, really intriguing. And, uh, you know, I, I love the, you're sitting there, you're watching the, the woman cooking coffee beans on the, the stove. You're watching the, the man building an accordion at one point. I mean, just everything just feels really, um, tactile and really, uh, uh, homemade uh, from uh, the music to the the food to even even the horse racing itself feels like it's a um, it, it's something that is kind of assembled by hand uh, and it's just this uh, really really uh, compelling look at uh, a community that has has really uh, tried their best to maintain uh, traditions. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you get you get the sense that this way of life is already endangered. In fact, I think in both yeah. films there are kind of prominent characters who talk about how life nowadays ain't how it used to be, and we're living too fast, and uh, you know technology is taking over, and you know you, you almost weep to think what do they <laughs> what they think of life yeah. in the the twenty first century here. So yeah, so there is a bit of a time capsule thing going on here, and I also just appreciate, like you said, that handmade quality, the the lack of commercialization. That these horse races are just, you know, they're they're it's a labor of love. There's there's no academy, there's no jockey school that these kids went to, and even the boys, you can already tell the boys themselves are already kind of assimilating into this sense of what it means to be a man. Oh, I ain't scared. It ain't nothing, you know. <laughs> just kind of yeah. laying it cool when you're, you know, when you're blazing them down on the back of a horse you know going at a full-out gallop um that's a pretty intense experience but of course the boys don't really want to let on any any palpitations or reservations they're they're just there to have some fun and learn learn from the elders i I like that one shot of the uh the horse that uh the horse race you know we've seen a couple of horse races and then there's the one shot where there's uh a horse with no rider uh, and you wonder what happened to the child riding the horse. <laughs> you know, that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing there's all those little details, all those little mm-hmm. kind of, um, 
pieces where where Les Blank isn't necessarily making it obvious, but there are connections. There are little thematic and narrative elements, and I think that's that's one of the things that he must have learned from. Uh, the Pennebakers and the Richard Leacocks mm-hmm. and, and others, uh, the Maisels, who were a little bit ahead of him in this sense. But uh, he was paying close attention and entering into these scenes probably without a very strong or clear idea of what this film was going to look like. He just found the components and figured at some point the story will kind of tell itself. Yeah. And and that's what we have here. So, yeah, what what are some of the other takeaways as far as this this impression of of the Cajun way of life? I mean, we you know, we have the the famous scene that Werner Herzog uh sort of zeroed in on and appropriated for one of his films with a guy pulling his own tooth out with a pair of pliers. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was pretty classic. And and I think right before that there was just a scene there there was some it seems like there was some discussion about I don't know, health carers or something, just how, how the community takes care of themselves. And then here he mm-hmm. is just doing his own little dentistry there. I had to say that guy reminds me of uh, my relatives on my dad's side and not so much the yanking out the tooth, you know, uh, but the way afterwards <laughs> he's like, I tell you what, I feel much better now. I oh, truly yeah. am. I feel much better. Yeah. I'm just like, Oh my God. God, that is my family to a T. Like something like 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 boy, that tooth was bugging me for weeks and ah oh, I feel so good now. <laughs> like it's just amazing. Amazing. Yep. And, yep. He, and he had to do this at the picnic with uh-huh. all the ladies and the kids sitting around uh-huh. and, and get a little notoriety from it rather than in the privacy of his own. Oh yeah, life. yeah. I know he don't totally did it for that reason, <laughs> like then. <laughs> spitting out blood Uh, somebody give me a beer you know i was worried he was going to try to offer uh, dentistry to one of the ladies sitting there (laughs) well he 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 was playing around with that that that's one of those little connective threads there's a scene just it's just a glance a few you know several minutes later where he's holding the pliers up to a lady's mouth and and Mm -hmm. his wife or whoever so you're right there's there's just that kind of sense of fun and playfulness and and the and the one uh, older guy who just talked about you know how you you work like hell to make money so you can spend it all on having a good time. I mean, that's, that's really mm-hmm. this, this is that essence of their way of life. And I think that that is the part uh, of this particular film that was just so galvanizing to me was, you know, these people, like I say, I, I'm not sure I would really be cut out to live that life, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but what, what they've done is created this alternative community that also feels pretty inclusive. I mean, it's still very much a, a white Euro type of, of environment, but you know, some of the earlier, uh, photos and, and there is a sense of, of, of inclusive inclusion and acceptance and of just letting people be themselves. That is, that is very refreshing. Um, you know, for, for this film. Now, I don't know. I mean, I, I have to imagine that there's, there are some difficulties and there are some challenges that are faced by people living in that environment. And, um, even less blank, there's a, there's a kind of a, an excerpt from a documentary that I think was still in production when this set was released. Uh, I think it's being made by, by his son and, and maybe others who knew him. And Les Blank himself even makes a comment that he recognizes that in some ways he filmed them romantically, in other words, kind of romanticizing or just emphasizing the positive. And I just wonder, is there any kind of a critique about about him maybe 
putting uh, the glossy side up when maybe he could have dug a little bit deeper. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really faulting those films because they are what they are and they're very effective. But um, And I don't know that he was even trying to say this is the last word <laughs> on these societies. He just wanted to give them a chance to sort of speak for themselves to be seen and to shine. Uh, but, but what are your thoughts about that? Uh, you know, could he have taken some different editorial approaches here? Yeah, I think he does have a tendency to romanticize cultures that are not what he sees as like the, the dominant leave it to beaver type of culture mm-hmm. uh, from that time. He didn't want to, you know, have a Brady Bunch version of the, Cajuns Mm -hmm. but you know even stuff like that amazing scene with the tooth pulling like that does really point to a lot of other things going on in that culture which is the the lack of access to healthcare, the lack of education and you know even addiction like chewing tobacco which is you know probably why all his teeth are falling out Mm -hmm. uh, because you know he doesn't have too many teeth left and there's just a lot of uh undercurrents to some of that stuff and like you know, he also gets to show like, this is a big communal feast where, you know, they've bought, cause those are store-bought chickens that are out on that table. They have like right. 20, 20 tick chickens and they've got all, all the display they're putting on is like the best things can be. But at the same time, there's so much rural par- poverty and particularly for like, you know, cultures like Acadian, Cajun, uh, that, that kind of like feast day, well common throughout like the whole year like it didn't mean that they were eating as good like these elaborate meals that Les Blank loved to feature that wasn't the food of every day a lot of times you know so right yeah uh, they probably had a lot of shrimp but you know they were probably more interested in selling that shrimp than they were Mm -hmm. in actually just you know consuming it in huge you know bowls of gumbo yeah but at the same time boy that's some pretty appetizing (laughs) looking stuff yeah yeah it's gonna knock me off a diet watching these movies again (laughs) (laughs) and you also get that that interview with the the man who watches the dump he watches the town dump uh, you have the other person who he drives a school bus mm-hmm. and he plays music at night and he has a third job. I mean, you so you get a sense of how precarious people's lives are here. They don't dwell on it because this is what life is and they're doing what they can uh, in in this life. And I also think there is this, I think there's this tendency in in a lot of, I think we want, our films to be all things. Sometimes we want them to celebrate a community, but we also want them to mm-hmm. point out all the hardships mm-hmm. and we want them to, uh, to talk about all of the different problems that are going on, but we also don't want them to be too hard on them. And, and I think that Les Blank isn't, he, as I've watched more and more of his films, I get the sense that he's, he's a poet with film and he's using documentary as his, his mm-hmm. medium. So of course he's not going to be, painting quite the same sociological portrait that someone like the Maisels or someone that like even documentarians today who are going in with a very clear portrait. We're going to talk about this community and all of the horrible problems that affect them. And we're going to show you so that you feel bad. Right. He, he's not interested in that. And, and demand action. Where's the justice? All of that. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. This yeah. is, he's just, he's going to give us a portrait. Yeah. It's actually my favorite thing about Les Blank is that he is like that romanticism and like the, like going for the positive portrayals 
it's more fair in a way, even if there's like reasons why like you would say, okay, that's not accurate. It's the way that we all see ourselves at all times, you Mm -hmm. know, whether, you know, we're growing up in Cajun country or in Missouri or anywhere else, you know, you, you tend, your brain just tends to not focus on the negatives. Yeah. And I really love that. It's not that modern style, which so often is just tourism through poverty. Mm. And it's, and it's more about like, oh, we're making this so that like the rich people on the coast can see it and be like, oh my gosh, things are so bad. Like there's a an aesthetic to some of like the modern documentaries where they're like, we're going to be so socially real that it, it becomes almost offensive mm-hmm. uh, in how it can be portrayed. Yeah. And I think that for all that Les has his own agendas and his uh, own like style and like what he finds fascinating, he never goes to that approach which is worse of uh of just that doing tour doing tourism you know in other people's cultures in order to portray the negative sides of it so he's always bringing out the positive qualities and the things that he loves about these cultures yeah yeah and and not really trying to steer it too much i think another Mm -hmm. one of the uh, supplements talked about how he could just sort of enter into a scene where he was definitely not just one of the usual crowd uh, and he's got a camera. There might be a person with a sound recorder or whatever, but he's very unobtrusive. And, and by becoming sort of blended into that landscape, he allows the the event, even if it's a staged event, even if it's the biggest feast of the year, and we're going to, you know, all show up in our Sunday best and we're all going to, you know, put our best foot forward. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but he's given them that space so they don't have to feel self-conscious and he's not trying to stage manage how how the event unfolds. Uh, I think another thing that just really, again, just won me over was just the propulsion of this music mm. and the fact that these these people, some of them pretty pretty roughneck characters, some beautiful music is just residing in their soul and they just know how to push those buttons and squeeze that box or bend that bow on the fiddle and, and just make this glorious rhythmic syncopated noise that just it just flows throughout the whole film and it just gives you the sense of almost an enchantment of this place and of this society that is really pretty magical and, and pretty unforgettable and uh again the, the way the editing uses that music it's not just the performers the music becomes kind of part of the wind and the sun and the and and the the rain that that, that falls all across the area uh the, the the music is just part of that environment and just draws draws us in so yeah, and any other comments or any other kind of high points that stand out for Spend It All before we take a look over at the man's Lipscomb's world? Uh, I would just add that the guy at the end making the accordions is one of Les yeah. Blank's most uh, most used subjects. He shows up, mm. I think, in like three or four other Les Blank films. He's the main focus of the Yum 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 mm-hmm. uh, film, and I think he even did a. It's not, I don't know if it's on the set, but he did one with that guy and his wife, uh, you know, just focusing on them and they maybe even be in always for pleasure. He was uh, a great friend of, uh, of Les Blanks. And so he, if you keep watching the set, you'll see, keep seeing him recur, you know, through the years as they go back and revisit some of these, uh, these places and people. Is he one of the Balfa brothers or is he one of the other guys? I think his first name is Mark. Uh, I can't remember. Um, who, who it is <laughs> flip to the book real quick here yeah mark savoy 
But yeah, like the when I was uh, rewatching it, yeah, Mark Savoy. Yep. And when I was rewatching it and he shows up there about in the last like, you know, 10, 15 minutes of the film for the first time, I was like, oh, yeah, like this guy, he's he's in all of the movies. Like this is the first time we meet him. And so it was kind of like it was pretty fun to to touch base back like, you know, years, years later for me going back to this first film. And like, you know, it's like uh, it's all time is a flat circle (laughs) (laughs) yeah well and and you start to see the connections and the relationships because it seems pretty clear that les blank i think i think the lightning hopkins especially uh kind of marked the path that he was going to pursue you know the the earlier film uh the the god respects us when we work loves us when we dance was based on the the love-in down in los angeles kind of a hippie gathering uh in 67 so you know right there at the summer of love and the kind of the the full flower kind of monterey pop all of that type of you know hate ashbury scene uh, but he didn't really stay with that that was being pretty well covered elsewhere mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think i think and i'm not even sure that that was really less blanks type of scene he seems mm-hmm. to like the, that funky salt of the earth type of situation i think meeting lightning hopkins who was a very prominent pretty well-known blues musician at the time uh and 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 lightning himself is just such a an amazing character that i think uh les blank knew that he had you know kind of literally caught lightning in a bottle and said oh this is good i'm gonna <laughs> gonna see what else is down there and that's kind of what i think sort of led him into the company of mance lipscomb who um it's very interesting the way that he's presented. I, I now I, I you know I like the blues. I've I've listened to my share of you know Delta blues going back to Robert Johnson and Sunhouse and Blind Lemon Jefferson and all of that. Uh, I was not familiar with Mance Lipscomb. I had heard Lightning Hopkins prior to you know seeing him in this Les Blank film, but Lipscomb um, was was a more obscure character, at least for, for, as far as I was concerned. And so when he first showed up and I had not done any background reading, uh, I just thought he was just this farm guy who was just kind of this down home, you know, elder statesman kind of guy, uh, that, you know, this real, you know, wise and old man who'd lived a good life and, and had seen some things and done some things and had a few things that he wanted to pass on. And then he starts playing the guitar. It's like, dude, that guy's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, this guy can really play. And apparently, you know, he, he was, you know, pretty well regarded. Uh, he does some pretty amazing stuff on the guitar, although, Again, it's sort of it's all sort of in deep background. You don't mm-hmm. you, you hear the playing, uh, but it's just kind of part of that you know mellow, smooth soundtrack that you kind of almost come to expect from a less blank film now. Have you having seen a few of them? But then when you really start recognizing, dude, that that's like one guitar player who's doing all these different parts and just whipping it off so casual and just you know he's not he's not sweating it at all. It's just flowing from him. It's like. That was very impressive. So I don't know that he has as, as deep of a discography. It seemed like Lightning Hopkins was more about being a professional paid musician who traveled around and did a lot of concerts. Maybe earlier on, Mance Lipscomb did more some of that, but it seems like he was really just a character in his community who just happened to play a pretty mean guitar. <laughs> and, and, and the people who lived around him were just kind of blessed to have him as as part of their everyday way of life um adam i think you said that this is your favorite of of the of the two and maybe one of the favorites of the entire set tell me a little bit more about uh, what draws you to a well-spent life uh well i just i really like mance and yeah. like i and i i just feel like he looks a lot like my uh my paternal grandfather just the lines on his face the mm-hmm. like 
you know, just the way he speaks, the uh, the accent, uh, like just that he feels just like a farmer who has seen it all, you know, and has, uh, uh, you know, has a lot, has a lot of, uh, great things to say. Um, and yeah, I just, I loved his vibe and the, the music as well is just, uh, remarkable. I, it makes you wish that you had like a lot of great footage of him playing, but at the same time, kind of like, you know, you know, pivoting off what we were saying earlier, like it's also kind of great that he gets his say and that it doesn't just focus on him as a musician performing for us. He gets to like show his life, talk about his people, you know, show his, you know, church, you know, with the river baptism and, you know, it's, it, you know, to an extent, like, you know, some of this stuff like feels like, you know, okay, staged for camera probably, but at the same time, it's, it has a, a wonderful like depth to it in terms of portraying him as more than just a musician uh, that got famous at 70 and recorded for the first time and, you know, pulled around to a lot of folk festivals as that was like, uh, you know, and blues festivals, but it's, uh, it, it's really kind of cool that it's, it's not just, you know, footage of him you know picking the guitar it's it's all the rest of who he is that we get to see and that's really really awesome yeah what are your some of thought some of your thoughts josh uh what, what did you enjoy about this film yeah i i really i was a lot like you david i came in blind to the the film i i came in blind to both films i didn't know what either of the films were going to be about i just plugged the disc in and, and started watching and so as I started watching the film, um, I wasn't, you know, he, he introduces himself as a, a farmer. He introduces his life. Uh, and as it's slowly revealed that he's a musician and as it's slowly revealed that he, uh, it, you know, tours, as we see these younger uh, people sitting on his porch, looking at his records uh, as the portrait of his uh music career uh, begins to be uncovered. I love that that's just in context of his entire life. It's just a small part of, of who he is Um, because we really get to see how he interacts with his neighbors. We get to see how he interacts with his wife and uh, the, the entire community that he's a part of. We, we see the fields as, you know, he's talking about things are speeding up too fast and, you know, you know, just come on down to our, our house and, and have a, have a slow dinner with us and we'll sit there and we'll talk to you. Um, don't, don't go to the, the restaurant where they just want to get you in and out so they can get the next person in and out too. Uh, you know, there's, there's just this real sense of, uh, he has this, this hard one wisdom. He has this, uh, this real sense of of the world. Um, I love the sequence with his neighbor and or the the person in the community uh, and his wife and the uh, the man who are trying to get on the horse uh, after he's had his leg shot off by his wife. Um, I won't spoil too much about the story because uh, I do think that it's a it's a great story and it's a great there's some great context there, uh, but it's a it's a delightful bit of uh, and, and and I love the way that Mance actually frames it too. It's it's not just 
a funny story. It's also, I think it also reveals a lot about uh, the generation that he's a part of. It reveals a lot about the ways that men and women relate to each other from that generation, the ways that uh, they, they end up sticking together. Uh, I don't know. There's just, there's so much more than just, it's not just a portrait of a musician. I think that that would have, that would have been fine. I would have, I would have thought it was a a fine, fine film, but I I find those, I find musician uh, biopics, or uh, uh, documentary so much less interesting than these types of just deep dives into a person's life and, and community. And, and this was just incredibly riveting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great to be entertained and it's certainly, you, you, you appreciate the, the technical skill and the musicianship of a, of a, of a, of a finely tuned band. And, you know, these folks have been playing together and, and, you know, he's playing to the crowd and you know, he, he can do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, but it's not like self-conscious show business. You know, he's, he's really just sort of opening up and just letting some of his uh, experience and his soul just kind of come through the music. And, you're right. You know, even though the the overall tone is is cheerful and and positive and celebratory, there's clearly some pretty dark times that have been through. He says, "I've I've met some good people, and I've met some bad people." Yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, you know the, the big boss man and and some of the some of the hardships of being a sharecropper, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the you know pretty heavily implied but never explicitly stated racism mm-hmm. uh, the domestic violence the poverty i mean that's all some pretty real pretty heavy stuff and it's not like uh les blank is trying to pull a uh the cover over all of that he's just sort of saying it's there but that doesn't have to be the defining characteristic uh or or the um you know the the ultimate takeaway from from what is what life has been like for these people they have things to teach us people who live in cities people who are perhaps more educated more financially affluent uh, uh you know more quote-unquote sophisticated however you choose to define that uh, these are people of, of great intelligence of great resourcefulness uh, of great compassion and warmth and, and dignity and talent you know I mean, they, they've got all those attributes it just comes out in a it's a more of a rural rustic type of situation and expression uh but but never one that should be looked down upon because of its, you know, relative simplicity or the unpolished ways in which it comes across. And I, I think that's just a, a really magnificent testament uh, because you're right. You know, Manslowson did make some records. Uh, there is a fair amount of, you know, recording of, of him doing his thing on the guitar, but this rounds out the picture so much more fully than uh, even a, a multi-album set really could, right? Yeah, there's a great sequence uh, midway through the film where uh, Les is letting Mance monologue a bit about uh, marriage. And, you know, as you know, he's like, I, you know, I was married in 1913 13. and, you know, been married 70 years and like, ain't that a great thing? And then Les cuts to Mance's wife, you know, <laughs> working hard inside, cooking food, doing a ton of work. And she's kind of like, you like you spend like maybe three minutes with her and uh, she kind of just undercuts Mance and it's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. And she's just like, yeah, yeah. Oh, he said that. He said that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you know, 
boy, he, he wouldn't come home. And I just, I stopped keeping his food warm for him. And I was just like, I'm just going to eat. I just going to eat my dinner now. Cause you know, it kind of implies that like, you know, Mance was, was out like, you know, playing gigs and doing shows late at night. A lot of times, uh, you know, in his younger days, you know, probably just like, you know, like little like dives and whatnot. Uh, and, uh, it was hard on her and she's fed up with it and she doesn't much, uh, appreciate Mance, you know, putting the romantic, uh, you know, sheen over everything. And I just, I love that she gets a little bit of a voice too. I, I was, you're almost just like, boy, I'd watch a whole documentary just about you. You, you, you <laughs> like you, you're cooking and you're holding court and I would listen to you. You know, you're an elder. I just sit there all day. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, we are definitely seeing the, the mellow, matured man's lipscomb, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you, you get the sense that he could have been a rascal back in the, back oh, yeah. in the day. And, yeah. and, and, you know, that, that was just how it is. You know, we're, we're in this together, sink or swim. And, and that's how a lot of these relationships kind of, you know, they, it wasn't just all, you know, blue bells and butterflies uh for all those 50 60 years that they've been married right uh but they've they've stuck it out and they've made it work and uh and you're right she's got her side of the story just to <laughs> kind of keep the guy in check now that mr hollywood's down here making a movie about him let's let's keep it real right <laughs> so uh yeah i do i do appreciate that that balance uh, we can talk about the the kind of concluding scene as well which again puts puts it in this context it's a river baptism there's a mm-hmm. preacher mance is probably like the elder and he's there actually to help hold these folks up because they do the full dunk immersion right there in the muddy water of whatever creek is is, is flowing past uh the community there uh any any thoughts on just how that scene unfolded it was you know you get the sense pretty quickly that this is going to be a baptism there's a a kind of a, a message being delivered there uh and and the singing of the people again very heartfelt very soulful um it was and it didn't feel theatrical or put upon at all like this would have happened whether there's a camera there or not uh what are some of your impressions from that particular it's kind of the, the close well not the final final closing but it's kind of the culmination of of the portrayal of this community I I would say, you know, that's something that could very easily be staged because, you know, Les is talking to folks and he hears like, oh, yeah, we still baptize down at the river. And he's like, oh, I'd love to see that. I'd love to film that and be like, well, well, maybe we can do one. It's it's springtime. It'd be a little cold, but we we can go do one. But but I love about that is, uh, you know, Mance is out there, Aiden, uh, the pastor, you know, to to lift the people back up after they dunk them. And uh and so less is shooting them, but it's not about Mance. Like, you know, it's, mm-hmm, it's right. about the larger community. It's about the pastor. It's about the baptisms. Like, so even though like, you know, Mance is dead center cause he's the one out there in the river, it's, it's just not really about him. And so that's kind of, that's kind of like a nice little touch. And speaking again about how much like I related to this movie, you know, I was baptized in a river uh, yeah. about like that. And uh, cause our church would do them in, you know, in the summer, uh, we'd go down to the local creek and uh, do some uh, river baptisms, and I thought that was so cool as a kid. And so, yeah, I, I was like, I was watching this. I was like, "Yep, damn straight, looks right, sounds right." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. how it goes. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. That takes me back uh-huh. to I, I grew so. up in Eastern Washington, and we had the same type of river baptisms as well. And everybody gathered at the side of the river, uh, the singing and. Uh, 
again, this is, this is all about situating Mance within his community and situating him within the larger context that he's come from. And, uh, I think, yeah, I think it's a, a really beautiful way to end, end this film to, to put him within that larger context. Yeah. So, so what are some other, uh, you know, maybe final thoughts if we want to kind of start uh, wrapping things up? I mean, again, each of these films, about 40 odd minutes, I think they both kind of tapped into, uh, if you want maybe look at the context of the time, 71, 72, this was kind of an era where uh, the sort of the hippie thing had kind of come and gone. There was kind of a back to the earth, back to simplicity. You know, the Grateful Dead had kind of gotten into their folky type music, country influences. So there was this kind of, um, there was a fashionableness, I suppose you could say, to some of this uh, trendiness. But I think it's also that the trend was to get real, to try to get the back, mm-hmm. you know, get your feet back on the ground, get back in touch with with uh, you know authentic acoustic homemade music, good food, good cooking, good community, living off the land. I mean, that was very much kind of a a happening thing right around this time, the time that these films were made. And I think uh, Les Blank also tapping into kind of the, uh, you know, the, the folk music and, and, and just kind of that whole tradition of, of, you know, cap- capturing that, this kind of authenticity, whether it's on record or, or here on film. I think, again, he had a, he had kind of a unique angle and a, a willingness to immerse himself in these communities, find these unique characters and, and kind of give them their moment to shine. Um, I, I think that, you know, really set the stage for a, a very successful career afterwards. What are some of your final takeaways if we want to start kind of drawing things down? Yeah, I think immersion is a, a really good word <laughs> for Les Blank. And, you know, uh, a lot of times, you know, these movies didn't get much distribution. The, the, this pair was, you know, played in New York and probably some of the other big cities. Uh, but, you know, he would take the his films around to different, you know, colleges and, you know, mm-hmm. screen them at universities. And part of why he would do that is like after Garlic is as good as 10 Mothers came out, because he wanted an immersive experience. Mm-hmm. So he would get a little hot plate when he started up the movie. Uh, and he would start sauteing garlic outside the back of the theater or wherever in the, uh, you know, they were screening it on campus. And then he knew, you know, when the like scenes of like the the garlic getting fried and cooked and everything started to like really get uh, hit front and center on it, he would uh, take that hot plate of sizzling garlic and run through the theater. So the theater would be filled with the uh, the aroma of cooking garlic uh, mm. for everybody that was watching it. <laughs> and it's like, so it's like uh, an immersive yeah. experience, like really does kind of describe like what he was after and what multi-sensory, he tried, right? Yeah, what he even tried to create for those, right. uh, uh, you know, for like that movie in particular. Um so yeah, yeah. Well, I think it could have worked pretty successfully, especially with the uh, you know the Cajun cooking and in, in, uh, spend it all there. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he experimented with it with like these movies and some of the other ones because he didn't make that until 1980. Uh, like yeah. you know, as he was like putting together movies and food became more and more associated with his style of movies. Like I'm sure, like doing that kind of like aroma or like having some sort of cookout after a screening, like was the sort of uh, you know percolating and and playing with that idea for a long time before he led to that so wow that's awesome 
I appreciate you drawing attention to how these films were distributed too, because you're right. This is not going to be opening down, not not at the local Cineplex, which there really weren't Cineplexes back then. Not even drive-ins or or you know these were. Uh, if you're going to see it in this uh, cinema, it's going to be a very specialized, like an art theater in New York City or someplace like that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's going to be film clubs, universities, basements, you know, places like that. Maybe in churches or other types of social gathering places if they people want to kind of get on it but but you're right these are these are little you know tin cans of 16 millimeter films kind of you know floating from town to town and uh you know putting them up on a projector and setting up some folding chairs and checking it out mm-hmm. uh I, and i really i kind of hearken back to that and and thinking you know what a what a wonderful discovery this would have been to see it in one of those types of environments yeah uh josh kind of give us some of your thoughts uh, on these two films and and maybe uh where where we go from here as far as uh endorsing yeah. and exploring the films of Les Blank. Yeah, you know, it you know, I I love what Adam was saying about how immersive they feel and and it also just strikes me just how how open and inquisitive Les Blank is as a filmmaker, how much he just is is willing to to be in a community and listen to what the community has to say and has the, has to offer and uh i find that really really beautiful and really um really heartening as well um that uh he seems to go in without much by way of preconceived notions uh and he's there to to capture what he sees and uh it's it's really beautiful and uh what we end up with are these films that give us viewers at home this this impression of of what it is to uh, be in the community to to have an encounter with Mance to uh, to to be a part of his community as well and uh, it's uh, they're they're really they're really they're deeply human deeply um, they they really connect us i think with with what it is to be human and uh i i think they're they're some of the the great great uses of the documentary form yeah yeah and i think hopefully uh this this discussion if you haven't dive too deep into the films of Les Blank. Uh, we've whetted your appetite just a little bit here. Uh, I will definitely be, you know, getting some of these in. Because that's the other thing, too. The, the, the relative brevity of these films is mm-hmm. kind of like putting on a, a favorite record album, you know, about 45 minutes, flip it over side mm-hmm. one, side two, mm-hmm. kind of relive that vibe and just enjoy it without having to think all that hard about it. These are very, uh, just very great kind of hangout films in fact I, I can sort of see myself you know using some of these as soundtracks to family gatherings or just things they have sort of back there on the screen while we're mm-hmm, sitting together mm-hmm. because i again really bringing that music bringing that good food into just uh, the, the the living of everyday life i think is a there's there's a great encouragement to to, to, to make the music happen and to just celebrate those simple joys of, of living uh in the moment and, and being together as a family as a community and i know we're in a time when it's kind of difficult to do that we're still a lot of us in isolation lockdown i guess maybe it'll just be all the sweeter when we're finally able to get back together mm-hmm. uh and have they put some of this pandemic stuff behind us we still got a yep. ways to go though so yeah, <laughs> yeah. hang in there folks and and uh and, and and let these films kind of serve as a reminder and maybe you know something to look forward to as we uh as we move on into whatever the future has in store 
So yeah, so speaking of what the future has in store, so there are a couple films um, next season. We'll, we'll get to Dry Wood and the Hot Pepper. Uh, Adam, you got a little previews for us? They both look pretty musically themed, and uh, uh, those are seventy three films. Yeah, those those two films were made, I think, uh, based off the success of uh, Blues According to Lightning Hopkins, and they are the mm-hmm. most uh, sh- straightforwardly like just mostly ninety percent about just the music and the performances. Uh, So they're a little bit more almost concert films from what I recall. Uh, There's a lot more music, a lot more footage of them performing. Uh, And so they, they don't have quite as uh, distinctive of a less blank, you know, imprint, but they, they're still very much less blank blank films and they're good. You know, like that's, that's what I mostly remember about them is that like the performances are just really great and, and fun in those movies and that they also really feature quite a few performances mm-hmm. from what I recall, especially hot pepper, I think, but I think yeah. they're the same subject. Yeah. I think it says they were, they were made simultaneously. Yeah. This is really kind of like Creole Zydeco music mm-hmm. and the performers just looking at the pictures, it may be a little bit younger, so they don't have that kind of uh, yeah. well-worn uh, mm-hmm. kind of wisdom and, and uh, cultivated perspective that Mance Lipscomb had in his elder years yeah well and I think I think too like Les was getting commissioned by the artists to make Uh, these kinds of films at that time in his career based off the success of of the early documentaries you know which is where the Leon Russell thing kind of comes in the Leon Russell thing comes in (laughs) the burden of dreams comes in you know Mm. uh you know it's not just national endowment for the arts grants uh that you know you know fund maybe like lightning hopkins i would guess but you know he's actually getting paid to to document these uh artists by the artists themselves or by their label as part of the promotion for it so they're 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 not quite as you know as a result those two movies i think are are more focused on the musicians than uh than the ones that he had maybe more creative control over so yeah pose as a naked person is is quite uh interesting i I agree with Leon Russell on, on that one in that like, huh. you know, Les was not holding up his end of the bargain in the <laughs> way he was like crafting the film. Uh, and uh, so, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I think, well, that, that's a 70, it was filmed in 74, but wasn't released until much later, but I think I'm going to call it a 74 film because I'm just eager to get to that one <laughs> yeah. for my podcast. So yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll do that it's, one. It's uh, a good movie. Up the There's sequence a, lot there. of, yeah. a lot of good yeah. stuff in it. Uh, you know, Leon Russell's from Northwest Oklahoma. I'm from Southwest right. Missouri. So there's a lot there that I, I liked in it. They even go, uh, Les gets distracted. He wants to go out and film the spook light which is supposedly this like, you know, astral light that appears in the the woods along the border there. If you go out driving like the rural back roads at night in the summer, you'll see the spook light. I don't know. My impression always growing up was (laughs) it's it's a bunch of drunk, you know, drunk kids going out with the light being like, we're going to be the spook light. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Um, But like, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, like uh, it becomes a local legend and then people keep it going just because they're having fun with it. And, but you kind of feel like Les is taking it seriously. And I don't know that anybody 
really takes it that seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's doing his cultural anthropology, the the the, the beliefs and superstitions uh-huh, of, these, uh, uh-huh. of these tribal people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, yeah, and, and and just that that final note that yeah, uh, Les Blank very much was an indie filmmaker, which means you got to take the work where you find it, right? Whether yeah. that's a grant, whether yeah. it's a commission, uh, doing some self consciously promotional work, uh, but the fact is he 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 made it happen and kept it going you know he uh he carved out a path and had a, a very distinctive career and i think that's just another thing to celebrate that's what this box set does so wonderfully yeah. it really gives you you know the, the measure of a man and and uh, also in the show notes i do want to draw um, listeners attention there uh there are a couple websites he's got a vimeo feed which has a like over 100 videos uh, not not all of them are full less blank films some of them are interviews and things like that and then uh lessblankfilms.com is his official website so that you can see a lot more of his work stuff that maybe didn't quite rise to the level to make it into this blu-ray box set if you really want to you know take the deep dive it's all there uh, as well as just a a lot of other you know interesting bits and trivia about the guy and uh, this kind of movement that you could even say that he started so lots to enjoy there um you know there's not been a ton of critical scholarship but there's certainly a lot of appreciation and i think it's all very well deserved so I think that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. Um, Adam, thank you for joining me back here again. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about any links or any, you know, speaking of promotion, anything you want to share with listeners about what you're doing, what you're up to, or where they can uh, connect with you online? Um, well, I've, I mean, I've been working in TV animation uh, for the past year and a half or so, but we still don't have a 100% air date yet. So uh, can hold off on that. Uh, you know, I mean, I just, uh, you know, I post a review to letterbox for just about everything I watch. Uh, so like, yeah, I can get you, I'm, uh, locked cut on letterbox and, you know, I can give you that as a link. Uh, I just, uh, rewatched in February, uh, all of Ozu's post-war films, uh, Mm -hmm. just kind of in a run. And that was a lot of fun. And then, you know, after I finished watching an autumn afternoon, I, uh, joined the guys on the lost and criterion podcast to talk about yeah. Ozu, and that just posted yeah. this last week. And that's a very, very fun episode of, uh, uh, of their podcast. If you want to take a listen to that. So, yeah. How did that come about? I, I saw that show up in my queue. I haven't quite gotten around to listen to it. It's like, Ooh, Adam's a guest on lost and Criterion. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've uh, been on their, their podcast a few different times for okay. Le Her last summer. Um, you know, because that's one of my favorite films in the Criterion Collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we were kind of looking for another one to do. And I said, oh, let's do, you know, Autumn Afternoon. That'll be coming up in, you know, a few months. And so that was that was fun to talk about Ozu with them. And, and it was fun to, like, kind of revisit a lot of those films, like Tokyo Story and Late Spring I hadn't watched since mm. college. And uh, watching them again now, 10, 15, 20 years later, uh, you know, it's amazing how rich the films are how much richer they are the more life experience you have when you're watching some of those ozu classics so and i kind of get the sense that you kind of watched them somewhat in close proximity to each other kind of made that final run yeah that that is an amazing experience and i definitely endorse that i mean you know it's great to just pull out tokyo story late spring or whatever every once in a while and just Mm -hmm. pop in but i i don't really think you get the full power of ozu until you watch like that whole late ozu set 
yep. Uh, yep. floating weeds mm-hmm. and then finishing with, I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost devastating. It's, it's just so beautiful and so profound and so moving. So it, really cool. I, I'm really eager to listen to your discussion with, uh, with Adam and, and, uh, well, what's his Pat. guy's name? Pat, Pat. Adam, yeah. Adam and Pat. Yeah. yeah, so very cool. Uh, that that's great to hear. And uh, you know, congratulations on completing the Ozu journey. That's hmm. pretty awesome. Uh, it was a rewatch of all of them for me because I'd actually yeah. seen okay. pretty much. Every, but that, that's the okay. great thing about the channel and Hulu yeah. and Filmstruck is being able to see uh, do something like that. Just be like, I'm gonna, just, I'm just gonna watch all of Arda's films. I'm gonna watch yeah. all of Ozu's films, and it's an incredible resource. Like you know, when I was in film school at USC, you know, 20 years ago, almost 19 years ago, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the the film library at USC had 12,000 titles and they had three Ozu titles, you know, mm-hmm. like, like yeah. that's just the level of availability, you know, that you had before the streaming era. And mm-hmm. even if you went around to the various video stores around LA, you know, you might find, you know, Four, three or four, maybe five more other ones that were available on VHS tape. But like, you know, all of the 1930s films, all the films in late Ozu and things like, you know, Flavor of Green Tea Over Rice, those were just completely unavailable until streaming started. And it's it's incredible that, you know, we can access all of them whenever we want, like the Les Blank films, for example. I have the yeah. set, but I still queued them up on the channel because it was easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and speaking of streaming criterions, here's a guy who knows a few, few things about that. Josh, uh, tell listeners kind of what, what's going on with you and uh, yeah. the Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast and just whatever updates you want to throw out there. Yeah, uh, we're, I just recorded uh, an episode with Michael Hutchins, our uh, kind of regular uh, contributor to the podcast. For most of the listeners, they know that I had a bit of a health uh, emergency happen back in February. So I'm kind of curtailing a lot of the the stuff that I'm doing um, right now and kind of paring it down a bit. So uh, as I kind of am in recovery, we'll be doing one episode a month, uh, probably up through August or so. And uh, we'll just be focusing mainly on the new releases and expiring titles uh, for a bit uh, just to kind of keep keep that uh that going uh there'll be the kind of lightly edited stuff for a bit uh but uh we're doing that um you can find me on all of my normal social media stuff at josh hornbeck and i'm on letterbox i'm doing the seattle international film festival right now they have gone live uh or gone online uh this year and i've been really impressed with how they've actually managed to capture a lot of the film festival feel with programmer intros to films and uh, even getting the little SIF yearly, uh, they, they do a little SIF commercial for the festival before each film. And they, they've got all of that stuff programmed in and they've got Q and A's and there's an app on the Apple TV that I'm able to watch it all on. And uh, it's pretty, pretty fun. So I'm trying to keep notes on letterboxd on the films that I'm watching. So you can find me at Josh Hornbeck and I'm uh, trying to keep up with that uh, as much as I, as much as I can. Um, but yeah, so that's been, that's been a lot of fun to, to keep up uh, with that. And uh, so I'll be doing that for the next week. Excellent. Well, it's always good to connect with you, Josh. Definitely wish you the best as you continue to recover and uh, glad that you're able to you know, not only pop in here, but keep your own program going too and enjoy the rest of that film festival. I, 
guess the lines are shorter. There's there's one advantage, right? Exactly. <laughs> Just exactly. walk in and take your seat and, and get into it. All right. Well, so next in this podcast, we're going to be switching from the down-home naturalism of Les Blank to uh, something that's slightly different, Godzilla versus Gigan. <laughs> so from the <laughs> spine number 1,000, this is uh, Godzilla. I think there's kind of a... a, a sort of a mecha cyber type character i don't know i'm not sure on all the details i'll go into that one fairly blind as well <laughs> although i might have a flashback and say hey i watched this back in fifth grade or something <laughs> we'll, we'll see but anyways yeah so we uh, we like to throw the variety at you here folks on criterion reflection so godzilla is coming up next with another great cast uh, thank you for listening and everybody uh, you can also find me on TikTok and all the usual social media feeds. Check the show notes page for the links. We do appreciate any support that you may want to give to Criterion Cast on Patreon. I guess I'll throw a plug in for that. Uh, keep our little nonprofit uh, by the shoestrings type of operation going here. Uh, we do appreciate your support and your interaction and uh, look forward to any feedback you have about this conversation or others. So we'll talk to you all real soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Keep on trucking, baby, mama, mom blue. Keep on trucking, baby, someday you're gonna wanna see. Got a good, she's a little low. She can truck everywhere she goes. Keep on trucking, baby, mom blue. Seven, seven, five, eight, eight, five, nine, nine, five, hundred. Apple, peaches, plums, and pie. Who's not ready? Holla, I.